because it demands enormous sacrifice, really. If somebody joins a steel band or a brass band, they're basically giving up their life for it, which means that their spouses and their kids and everybody around them has to buy into that as well. Otherwise, you haven't got <laughs> your marriage ain't going to last for very long, is it? <laughs> Welcome. You're listening to the Town Sounds Oral History Podcast, and this episode is about as close as we're going to get to a Christmas special. It's entitled Brass and Steel, and by Phil Wood's intro, you've probably already guessed that this episode is mainly about brass bands and steel bands, but we'll also throw in some handbell ringing bands. We'll hear loads of music, some of which is bound to put you in the spirit of the season. Any avid listeners will note that our theme tune changes genre every month. I usually make the music myself, but I can't actually play any brass instruments, so this month I thank Chris Raffoni, Sally Edward and Dave Jordan for playing for me. So, get your scarf on, grab a cup of something wet and warm, and settle in for a fun and information-packed episode of the Town Sounds podcast. The last of this series. We'll have a shorter series next year, and if you listen to the end of this episode, you can find out how to get involved. Before that, here is the Dewsbury Minster's Handbell Ringers performing Ode to Joy at Dewsbury Minster for the first Heritage Open Day event of 2023. The bands featured in this episode are varied in style and instruments. Brass bands and steel pan bands seem a world away perhaps, but connecting them is the ethos, the work ethic and the plain logistics of the thing, as we will discover in this episode. Joining me to explain more is Rod Fisher from the Grangemore Brass Band, Peter Crossley from Skelmanthorpe Brass Band, Thomas Benjamin and Phil Wood from the North Star Steel Orchestra, and the local expert on handbell ringing and author of Ringing for Gold, Peter Fawcett. Here he is now. Because the sets of bells all around Huddersfield, even today, uh, if there were any other part of the country that would be highly valued as cultural items, uh, to say that Huddersfield is one of the cradles of it in history, um, it's largely been forgotten. Well, we have all sorts of juicy information for today's episode, breakdowns, fights, theft and controversial decisions. Stick around to the end to hear the contentions and challenges of brass, steel and handbell band playing in Kirklees. We'll get all around Kirklees today, Grange Moor and Skelmanthorpe in the east, the Home Valley in the south, Dewsbury in the north and Almondbury right in the middle. We'll briefly visit Deaton, Birkby and Liversidge. We'll even go slightly outside of the Kirklees region into Clifton on the northwestern border. It seems fitting somehow that I interviewed my first guest in a cold garage with no heating. Because my first interviewee, Rod Fisher, plays for Grangemore Brass Band, who, for three years from 1937, practised every week in their own band room, in the cold, before the heating was finally installed in 1940. Rod Fisher himself picked up and dusted off his cornet after a long hiatus. He started in the band's training group but soon lifted through the ranks and now plays as a solo cornet player. Everyone I spoke to in the lead-up to this interview said he was the man with all the knowledge. 
So here he is passing that knowledge on to you. While speaking, we'll hear the Grangemore Brass Band playing Gresford Miner's Hymn. Originally, it was very north-centred. Uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire, Durham, those were the big areas for brass bands. Some towns could have as many as, as 10 brass bands. And a lot of them were actually run by coal mines, factories, railways. They'd have their own brass band, very often sponsored by that organisation which they work for. And the, the employees saw it as a way to keep their sort of morals in the right direction and keep them out of mischief. And it gave them something to do. But also it represented the organisation they would they would help them by giving them a practice room that might contribute towards uniforms and music and that sort of thing. However, with Grange Moor, despite being in a big colliery area, was never a colliery band. They were actually very proud of that fact that they were truly independent and they were self-funding and earned their money from the concert fees, uh, prize money, and also they ran events like teas with a, a dance afterwards that people could pay to go along to. Well, the band actually started in 1854. At that time... Grange Moor was a very small village. Members of the band were predominantly miners who worked in the small, uh, what they call day halls, which are like little drift mines. Also, there'd be some agricultural workers in the band at the same time, but that was about it. And probably there were no more than about 12 to 15 members of the band when it first started. Now, the miners were pretty tough men. It was not uncommon for them to fall out during rehearsals, so the conductor would send them outside, tell them to sort it out between themselves and come back in as friends. That was quite commonplace, but they were, they were pretty tough guys, tough down the pits and, and, and tough in their social lives as well. And the band developed from there. It got involved in all of the different community activities, did a lot of work for the churches, for things like Easter festivals, Whitsuntide, Christmas, of course... The band was by this time competing. In fact, the first ever competition was in 1862. And interestingly, one of the pieces of music they played there was called Martha from an opera. And I've recently just found the original music to it. So we've now actually rehearsed it. We've put it into the programme for the coming season. Um, and then the band survived the wartime years, years because the miners were in a reserved occupation, so they weren't liable to be called up for military service. And women started to come in during the wartime years to fill gaps at that time when men were off fighting in the army and wherever. We were then heavily into contesting and we had a, a couple of golden periods in the 60s and 70s and won a lot of trophies. I think one, one thing that has been very important to our band is the fact that we have had these key families. Having families who encourage the children, the grandchildren to come in and play, and they continue to play themselves, is an absolute godsend. In fact, the band in its history has relied heavily on five different families. We, we actually had one family called the Johnson family. Between the three brothers, they racked up about 86 years service with the band. In fact, um, one of them was the conductor for oh, a huge number, about 46 years, I think for about 1916. Some of these contests could have 10,000 or more spectators. There was, not many people are aware of this, there was a steeplechase race course uh, just a mile away from Grange Moor, which was a series of races held um, annually, I think it was in January, 
And it was such a big event that people attended from all over the north of England. And they came by uh, horse and trap, came on the train, walked long distances from wherever they lived. Massive crowds there, which they would play to, and they would just go around with a collecting bucket. And, and they made a lot of money from that. I asked Rod about performances that Grange Moor Brass Band have done over the Kirklees year of music 2023. Yes, we've done uh, three different park concerts. We also did one, oddly, at um, Dewsbury Bus Station. <laughs> it's part of the Kirklees year of music. And we actually opened the year of music with that concert at one end of the bus station. Brass bands, of course, are highly recognised, understood and promoted in the Kirklees area and most of north of England and Wales. And for some years, part of the local cultural budget in Kirklees went to supporting brass bands in the area. But in 1987, Phil Wood, then 28, joined Kirklees Council. He was responsible for the grant aid budget, which for years was going to the same musical organisations. Brass bands, choral societies, the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, etc. But he knew that these local traditional forms were only telling part of the story of Kirklees music. He was introduced to Kelvin Benjamin, who was running the North Stars Steel Orchestra. Steel pan music in Kirklees. Could this be the future of the grant aid budget? Here's Phil to fill in the details. Yeah, I had a chat with, with, with Kelvin Benjamin and, and I said, well, you know, look, where, how serious are you then? How far do you want to go? How far can you, can you take this band? And he said, well, I think we can go all the way. I think we can become... British champions, we need we need backing on a different scale. We need to be able to get better instruments. We need to get more players. We need to bring in some expertise from Trinidad. We need to bring in a Trinidadian arranger, somebody who's going to create a special piece of music that we can go and play down there. We need a, a vehicle to actually go. You have to you have to go on the road. You need your own trolley to to actually carry you through through the streets. It's a massive, massive investment, you know. And you you have to plan years in advance, really, to do it. And I said, well, if you've really got the determination to do this, then I can't see any reason why we can't we shouldn't give you money because. You, you're going to put this town on the map, you know. So I went and had a word with my boss, and I said, I said, look, you know, you probably don't know anything about this music, it's probably completely invisible to you, but it's really, really serious. There's people, like, spending their whole lives on this and practising, and it's really co complex, good music, you know, and, and, and they really love this town as well. They're really proud to come from Huddersfield. So between me and him, we kind of were, and, and Kelvin, we worked out this three-year investment program. We said we're going to give you this X amount of money every year for three years. We were, you know, never looked back from that from that point. As 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 Thomas has said, it, it was <laughs> we got we went we were placed last first time. But in a way, that's a kind of rite of passage. I think yeah, the, Lon yeah. the London boys are always going to do that to any yeah, any, any outsider. Any, any outsiders, yeah. They're going to put you down. They're going to slap you down first time and say, "Let's see what you're made of. Let's see if you come back again for more." Mandeep Samra from the Town Sounds team also spoke to Thomas Benjamin, the brother of Kelvin. He told us a little about the origins of Steel Pan and how it translated into the North Star Steel Orchestra. Whilst he talks, we'll hear the North Star Steel Orchestra performing Bach's Minuet in G Major. 
Yeah, it's all sighted in, in Trinidad. What it was, it was um because they had oil in Trinidad, right? There were loads of, and at that time the war was going on. There were loads of spare oil drums and nobody had any use for them. So they, some genius came up with the idea, we can do something with this. And there they start sinking the drums and they find where they can get an old. And so it went on and it, 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 it divide as time goes on, it developed and it's developed to what it is today. And now it's worldwide. Everywhere you go in, in Europe, in Japan, wherever, there's a steel band there. My brother worked at ICI. We were, doing, we were going to some event and we didn't have equipment, shirt, you know, sponsors. So he went and talked to the, the manager at ICI. So, and then from there it developed and we started getting more and more stuff from Zeneca. All we used to do for them was to play in a, in a room when anybody's retiring from work. We used to, they used to invite us to play for that person who's retiring. Thomas told us more about the humble beginnings of the band, the determination of which led to the popular band it eventually became. They started before I did. They started putting money together because they, they didn't have any money in them days and everybody would put in you know, like two quid or whatever in, in a kitty to try and get the instrument. And after that, when they did get the instrument, they had no place to practice. So that's where Mr. Bob came in. We went to Venn Street and we asked Mr. Bob's about a place to practice and he says, oh, there's a room upstairs, you can have that. Yeah, six, seven, eight months and we get first booking by Mr. Bob's. Then he take us to the Lord Mayor's Huddersfield here, Lord Mayor's and Parade. At that time, there was no Huddersfield Carnival, about 1976. After that, we started to put money together to get transport, take us about to get bookings and all that. After we get a certain amount, and this is all voluntary because nobody will get any money out of it. Just for the love of it, like, you know. We went to Oldham and we saw a, a big transit van. <laughs> we bought that, but it, get, it did get us about, you know. Even, I'll tell you one, one story about that. We were going just up to um, Emily in Limas, going up there, and we couldn't get there because the van broke down. But after that, everything started picking up bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. This is where Kirklis helped us a lot. From there, Kirklis find us Deaton Centre because we had nowhere to go. Kirklis find us um, Deaton Centre and they gave it to us at, uh, a reduced rent, like quarter of what it was supposed to be. And we, st we stayed there for years and years and years and years until the band was not functioning anymore. Well, what, what it was, there was nothing like that in Odosfield at the time. At bar for the 1957 one, we didn't know about it. In the end, it paid off big style because we put Odosfield on the map. When we go into big events like London Panorama and all that, we had about, what, 60, 70 players. People used to come all the way from Newcastle just to listen to us practice. Yes, it was a big, a big, a big adventure. This man had a lot to do with it. And the band truly did go on to do some big things around the country. Phil Wood again. If somebody, if somebody were looking for a steel band to play somewhere unusual or, or grand, we, we want it to be, we, we, we would always put our hands up for it. So, yeah, to put, Playing the you know the centenary of the Labour Party at the yeah, old yeah, Vic yeah. Uh, for, yeah, uh, for 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 Tony Blair or we played Shakespeare's Globe Ooh, just yeah. after it opened mm -hmm. you know so we we were the first steel band to play at the the new Shakespeare's Globe Theatre uh, played at Royal Festival Hall oh, yeah. um, played um, yeah the the, the 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 Jubilee it's yeah that's that that's that's the North Stars thing we. I thought we should go out with a bang, mm. and I, th I think we did in the end. Mm. Our last big, big project with Dennis Rollins. Dennis Rollins, yeah, yeah. With, was, that was a memorable one, yeah, yeah. We did that whole oh, really one. <laughs> we wanted, to, yeah, and again, you know, it's like setting a new 
challenge and, and doing something that no steel band in Britain had ever done before. And that was we, we collaborated with a completely different style of musician, a jazz funk trombone player, the be well, Britain's best <laughs> jazz trombone player, Dennis Rollins, who's of Jamaican background but brought up in Yorkshire. And he's come through the brass band tradition actually. But he's famous around around the world as, as, as a jazz and funk trombonist. I, we got to know we got to know him. It's also important to, to say that our musical director at that time was uh, a local white guy, Jeremy Platt, who teaches he's a head of music at Shelley High School. He managed to translate a lot of non-traditional music for the band to learn, and and he was keen to bring in a jazz improviser. And so we got we got to know Dennis Rollins, and it just so happened that Dennis Rollins always had an ambition to play with a steel band, but never could see that how it could possibly work. So we, we provided that bridge, and it was a complete clash of cultures in a way, two completely different ways of, of playing and thinking about music. But we thought, oh, we're going to do a, a national tour, we're going to play the best venues, the top jazz festivals, and we're going to do something we've never done before, which is pay all the musicians. We're going to give them the proper rate for the job. And we did it. <laughs> it, was, it was massive. It was, it was the biggest challenge, I think, for, for all the musicians oh, that yeah. they've ever had. I've, I've got an interesting review. There's a review from the Mars and Jazz Festival of a, you can, oh, an obviously a sceptical re music reviewer coming along thinking this, this is not going to work and uh, really admitted, I've got to admit I was completely wrong, he says, it really works, brilliant. And I think everybody just felt so great. The North Star Steel Orchestra broke up in the early 2000s and are no longer operating. In fact, Kirklees still dreams of a new steel band. But moving swiftly on from brass band and steel pan, let's hear about some handbell ringing in Kirklees. We'll start off with another piece from the Dewsbury Minster's Handbell Ringers. Handbell ringing has a history in the area that goes back hundreds of years. Here is the leader of the modern handbell ringing group, Ronalda, introducing some pieces for us now to hear. Well, it's a big contrast. We have three notes, right? Bobby Shafter, oranges and lemons, and polyphobic. We've already had some extensive knowledge on the podcast episode so far, but our next guest has so much information on the history of handbell ringing that he has published a book about it. Entitled Ringing for Gold, Handbell Ringing the Living Tradition, this book by Peter Fawcett is a mine of intimate, intricate and interesting information about handbell ringing. In speaking to him, you realise that all the information in the book is also contained in his head. Dates, details and drama all there. Lucky for us, we have him here to tell us all. I looked at a book about Clifton and it said that Clifton used to have handbell ringers and it was said that the set of handbells was still in the village. Well, I used to work at Kirtley's Hall for Lord and Lady Armitage and so I inquired on some of workers and he said, 
Stanley Oxenley goes to Armitage. He'll know where they are. And said, well, I will find him. And they said, look for little dog. So it was Boxing Day, 1995. And I went in there and see, found this bloke with a little dog. And I asked him and he said, yeah, he says Clifton and Bells are in Lister's Wyrmell at the bottom of Clifton Common. I was expecting a dozen. And I went down there, they're about 150, like, you know. The Bells themselves were in good condition. They were cast in 1909, and they hadn't been used since 1916, like, right, Phil. I got mill owners' permission to take them away, and we took them up to Clifton, we got them going, like, you know. Uh, uh, that was 1976. I had a stroke of luck in that there was a, a traditional handbell. He, he played in the 1930s with Almondbury. I went to see him and I invited him up to Clifton and eventually he joined the senior band like and it was really, really good. It was incredible. He had a, a great style of moving his wrists and that. Absolutely fantastic. So that's how it all started for Peter and his handbell ringing revival. But the history goes back many, many years. Peter's whole interview is packed with tantalising information about handbell ringing and Irish music. And he has recently released a book about gardening. I strongly recommend listening to the whole of this interview at the West Yorkshire Archive Service. But until then, here are a few highlights. I'll let Ronaldo introduce the next piece, which we'll play whilst Peter talks. The next piece I think is our current favourite. At the week of August, we had a visit from the Antiques Road Trip Film Crew. They'd heard about our historic bells and they wanted to see them and play them. We taught Margie Cooper to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, then Bobby Shafter, working towards the piece we'll play next. Oh dear, what can the matter be? Margie wanted to show off when the other presenter, Mark Hill, arrived. The crew spent all morning with us filming. Yesterday, this would probably be about four minutes of the finished programme, which will be shown next year, February, March time, on BBC One. More fame for our special news for bells. In 1939, my research showed that there were at least nine bands between Liversedge, Ecclesfield and Saddleworth, but all of them were operating independently that didn't know of the existence of the others. In this whole region, if I hadn't have reformed, as I call it, Clifton, there would have been no hand bell ringing as in band form at all. There was a set of bells at Holly Parish Church and they'd been used in 1860s, 70s, 80s by Holford Temperance. But then, next thing I knew, after all my publicity in the 1980s, I heard about from a, a friend of mine in Sheffield that a guy pulled up and he opened his boot and there were all the uh, only temperance bells in the boot. But he never revealed who he was and he, he, he offered them to a few other people. Anyway, then eventually a man bought them, did them up and then he donated them to a blind school. And it was in the examiner. He got a call from Honley uh, Parish Church saying, and they said, how did you get hold of our bells? So in actual fact, I reckon they'd been, they'd been stolen. And a similar thing must have happened at uh, Almondbury. And when I was there in 1978, there were two sets of bells, 168. He opened this storeroom and it was packed out with bells. And I knew in there, the um, Shelley bells, they were from um, about 1860 to about 1882, something like that. 
and they were in there as well, I think it was Stockham Bells. And so it was full of them, this storeroom. I remember seeing them on racks, that every one of them disappeared like, you know. And right up until this day, there are regional differences between how you play the handbells. The traditional handbell ringing built up of different techniques. It was simple techniques at first, because they were only using a dozen bells. But when they had competitions at wakes, this will be like in 1700s, they got more bells. And by 1855, at first British Open at Bellevue, they were using anything from like 32 bells to um, 54. 1866, he introduced three. So we'll have three of each. By 1900, your standard set of bells would be 165. That's what Crossland Boy used. Gradually, as they got bigger, they put them on the table, what they did at first. But then they had the idea, well, we'll have some special mattresses made. I had a new set made at the mattress firm on Cambridge Road. That was another amazing thing. When I went to him, he says, oh, he says, um, he said, I made some of these for Crossland Moor in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, same man. <clears throat> the technique, when you play off a table, which you pick the bell up and you put it back on its side. Previous to that, they'd had the, the bells mouth down with the handle stuck up in the air. But when the revival started, it was a national revival all over the country. And so in other areas, the tradition never developed onto a table at all. They carried on playing just in hand. They'd never seen anybody play it off a table because it had developed amongst the competition bands at North of England. And finally, we will return to where we began with the brass band. This is our outgoing positive message from Peter Crossley of the Skelman Thorpe Brass Band. Here, I've taken some highlights from his interview, which I think make the brass band scene a quite tempting one to get into. So whether you haven't started playing yet, are learning now, or are already accomplished, consider the brass band. The Skelmanthorpe team has a community band which takes on and trains people of any ability. In this interview, conducted in 2021, you hear Peter talking about that too. Whilst he speaks, we'll hear the band playing around the Christmas tree in Skelmanthorpe, taken from their YouTube channel. Check it out, along with lots of other videos, after you've finished listening to this podcast. Oh yeah, I mean, every time we we perform, we are out as the band. It's a big family. It's a tremendous feeling. Uh, You've got to perform your your very, very best. I mean, I had one one young player at a competition, came and sat by me and says, I think I'll come and sit by you because you seem to be the the calmest of the players. I said, that's called age. (laughs) A lot of young youngsters playing from seven, eight years old, through to uh, my age and older. Between us, we'll have at least 80, 80 plus players, I would have thought. It's a lovely environment. We did a concert with Shri, with Indian music, and that was f- fabulous. We played with Catherine Jenkins and uh, Alfie Bow, uh, Ali Jones. The Scummerthorpe Band's in the championship section and recently, over the last few years, it's been held at Huddersfield Town Hall. And then the uh, top three, usually, will then perform in the national finals. If it's in the championship section, it's at the Royal Albert Hall. If it's in the first, second, third and fourth sections, then they currently play in Cheltenham. We're a village band. You know, it's, we're not a professional band. When you're working and you, you get home at whatever time, you know, Going to rehearsal, sometimes you'll go, oh, 
but then you uh, get that you, you know it's a team spirit and it, you have to take it just like you you know you do the the sports teams for a competition has to work as a team and gelled as a team well have been known to rehearse every night of the week for the last couple of weeks it is a commitment it's uh, but it's usually well worthwhile we put on an excellent performance and everybody's happy i think it's the the team and the family that you get even as i say even when you i was working and you i've traveled several hundred miles to to get home and then by the time i got to home and had dinner and i'm thinking oh, i'm too tired for this to go to rehearsal but then you get someone who shall remain nameless who give you a kick and say you know you need to go and, and then when i go it's like elation really you, you have a, a great you have two hours of solid concentration in your music you, everything you've done at work everything you've done at home disappears for those two hours from from a social point of view that's been great you know you totally immersed in the music so there's all sorts of lovely little bits like that i've mentioned a number of the uh, the concerts that we did the likes of uh, of Catherine Jenkins and concerts and those were really wonderful to be part of you know the kimbers men is one that i've always enjoyed uh, we've played with them uh, on Huddersfield town hall but we the best one with them I found was at um, Shepherd Music Festival, Folk Festival, sorry. It wasn't like the thousands you would have at some of the, the concerts, but it was a, a great concert. And, and everybody were part of the concert. They, they, they all took it in the spirit it was meant, and it was great. There was some very emotional music that they sang as well. We've recorded several CDs over the years. The last one we did was a a Christmas album with the, uh, all the teams from the Scunthorpe community. So there are several tracks from the very learners, the youngest ones, and through to the team that I play with as well. That's it for this series of the Town Sands podcast. I'm glad to announce that we've just secured support for another couple of episodes, which will be coming out in early 2024. They will cover music venues and musicians as parents. If you know someone with an interesting story to tell regarding these topics, please get in touch with either Sam H. Song or Let's Go Yorkshire on Instagram or Facebook. Until then, we wish you a very happy winter break. This was a Let's Go Yorkshire and Sam H. Song production. The host and producer was Sam Hudson. The podcast has been supported by Kirklees Council, Kirklees Year of Music 2023 and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Town Sounds explores the musical histories of Kirklees to uncover untold stories through the voices of local people living musical lives. For more information on this podcast, please visit musicinkirklees.co.uk.